I'm not sure if any of you have really spent a long time trying to ponder why we do good things for other people. I have been pondering that more because I've kind of dived back into the Sermon on the Mount in my study of late, and I think Jesus wants us to think about that. I think it's something worth our cogitation, to use a term that my father used to use. I'm going to cogitate on that, he would say. Every day I'm allowing Christ to overcome my pride and fear as I reveal his light to others. That's what we're talking about in this series of overcoming, knowing that Christ is the one who overcame, and he's the one who overcomes through his spirit these things in our lives. But it's going to take a while to get to the point when you can start to see how pride and fear enter into this. So I'm going to ask you to be patient, like my calculus teacher asked us when I was in high school. He would say, take this in, just let it soak into your brain, and eventually you're going to see the light bulb come on. I'm praying for that to happen when we get to the light bulb moments as you start to go, oh, I get it, I see now. So that's what we're going to do today. Why do we do good things? Why do we try to do them? Our motivations can be very clouded. Fear and pride may factor into our alleged morality. And with those as some of the motivators for us, we're going to see how Jesus starts to unpack something in his Sermon on the Mount to show that Christianity is something very different than religion. Extremely different. In fact, if you don't get this point from the Sermon on the Mount, you won't get Christianity. This is something crucial, and it's key. So we're going to camp out on that just a little bit by looking kind of at a distilled version of Matthew 5, 11 through 16, and uh, it's kind of the tincture of the Sermon on the Mount. It's a distilled concentrate since we went through that study before. In fact, we have the whole series as podcasts available if somebody wants to dive into those. If you have time to listen to them, they're on our website. Matthew 5, 11 through 16. Let me just read that to you and let this pour over you, and then I'm going to start unpacking that and show eventually how this affects our motivations and how Christ can overcome pride and fear from motivations that are not necessarily helpful. Jesus is speaking here, and he says, Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you falsely, say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way, they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl or a bushel basket. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. This is God's word from the Sermon on the Mount. The light we're talking about sharing isn't a light of religion. Crucial, we need to get that straight out. It's not the light of religion. If anything, Christ was trying to show how not only is Christianity different from the world, but it's way different from religion. 
background concept, something we need to think about a little bit here. Uh, some people can muddy the waters as we start approaching, we go through this series leading up to Easter. Uh, many people are in the midst of Lent, depending on what kind of background you may have come from. No matter what you come from, you're going to probably hear at some point when people are talking about, well, who killed Jesus? And it's a dangerous oversimplification and a broad brushstroke generalization for people to say, oh, it was the Jews. That's dangerous. Why do I say it's dangerous? Well, for one thing, it sounds anti-Semitic. And it's way too general because it's not getting at the motivation for the specific people who actually killed Jesus. For example, if we were to say, uh, the Greeks killed Aristotle. Well, that's a generalization. Well, Aristotle was himself a Greek. Most of the people he knew well were also Greeks. And the people who would have been his most vehement enemies were Greeks. So it's not a stretch to say that the Greeks killed Aristotle. But that's not really helpful because it doesn't give you enough information to know why they killed him and what was the real beef that they had with him. Same thing with Jesus. Jesus was a Jew. Most of the people he knew, his background would have been Jewish. Uh, a lot of his enemies were also Jewish. But we need to get a little deeper than that and find out, let's just not throw out an anti-Semitic sounding statement and throw gasoline on an already difficult fire by saying it was the Jews who killed Jesus. Let's find out more specifically who was it and why did they kill Jesus. Inflammatory generalizations don't help. So, who really did kill Jesus? Ah, religious leaders. If we want to catch the flavor of what Jesus is dealing with in the Sermon on the Mount, we need to understand, and if you want to just go through, if you could replace the terms scribes and Pharisees with religious leaders, it makes it a little bit more general, but you get the concept. Because the same can certainly be true even today. Because we have religious leaders who are just like modern-day scribes and Pharisees. I said last week, I would eliminate the term modern-day and just say, yeah, they're scribes and Pharisees. At the heart, they're the same way with this legalism and things that they miss in their own religiosity that Jesus was trying to speak against, especially in the Sermon on the Mount. So who killed really uh, Jesus? religious leaders. If you look through the Gospels, and specifically starting right with Matthew's Gospel, you can contrast how Jesus treats worldly people, people who are not espousing the same kind of things that he's out teaching, and religious people. He's extremely patient with people who are on the outside, the worldly people. He hangs out with people in their homes, and the religious people are pointing their fingers at him and saying, how dare he hang out with those sinners over there? The people that Jesus became the most testy with were religious people. He contrasts. This is uh, part of that distillation I was talking about. If you were to fast forward toward the end of the Sermon on the Mount, you can see these three parallels, these analogies that Jesus puts out there for us. And it helps us really come to grips with what he's been teaching through the Sermon on the Mount. He says, there are these two paths that he's been pointing to. One leads to life, the other to destruction. There are two houses. One is on a solid foundation. When the storms come, it stands firm. The other is built on sand, and when the storms come, the sand washes away, the foundation crumbles, and so does the house. comes right in on the dwellers. Two trees. One has good fruit, and when you eat of it, it's sweet. In fact, you develop good fruit in your own life. The other, it's poison and deadly. And basically what he's saying in this whole sermon, when he gets to the conclusion of his sermon, he's just saying, 
I've laid it out, two paths for you. Time for you to choose. Which of these will you follow? It's a good sermon. He preached it before I did, so I can't take credit for it. But it's a really good sermon. So what do these three things have in common? Well, on the outside, they look the same. A path looks like a path. A house looks like a house. A tree looks like a tree. So immediately, we're starting to see, even by fast-forwarding toward the end as he's wrapping up his conclusion, that he's not talking about externals and things that look good on the outside. In fact, if anything, he's starting to peel back the layers all through the Sermon on the Mount and saying it's definitely not about external outward observances. Not about that at all. What you don't see in the Sermon on the Mount is him saying there are these people who obey God's laws and people who don't. And you sinners are people who don't, so you need to be like those who do. He doesn't say that. Instead, he'll say things like, there are these two men. It's not one doesn't pray and the other prays. You should pray. He doesn't say that. He says two men were praying. One prayed this way and the other prayed that way. He's talking about some sort of under-the-surface change that's different. But what you don't see is this. You don't see eh, people who obey God's laws and people who don't. Eh, strike that right out. That sounds like some of the religious teaching that they would have gotten from the scribes and Pharisees. Jesus was not teaching that. You don't hear this man prays, this man doesn't, be like the man who does. You'll hear two men are praying, one prayed this way, the other prayed this way. The light Christians are to shine is not the light of religion. If somebody were to come up to me and ask me, and sometimes they do, if I'm traveling somewhere, pastors must have this little neon sign that says, talk to me. And so they'll start asking me all about religion. And they'll say, well, what religion are you? And I have to be very cautious how I, how I answer that. Because in some ways, I would like to be able to say, well, I'm not actually religious at all. And in one sense, I would be truthful. But I know what they usually mean from that, so I have to try to unpack what they're asking and ask a few questions of my own so that we can kind of get on the same page. Because what I would like to be able to say is, I think there's more danger in religion than many people understand, and I would prefer to say that I'm a Jesus follower because he has changed my life from the inside out and is continuing to do so. I think that's a little more accurate statement, and if I can get that far before they shut me out, that's what I would like to say to folks when they engage me in conversation. And Jesus even says that there is a righteousness that surpasses the righteousness of religious leaders. Now, normally, if we think of surpassing, we're thinking from our, our external observance frame of mind, and so did these people who are listening. They would have been thinking, wait, what? Surpass the scribes and Pharisees? We've seen the way that they are observing meticulously all these laws. I mean, they're afraid to even pick up a toothpick on the Sabbath because that's considered work. How can we surpass that? And in our culture, we might think, well... We can't really surpass that because that would mean more Bible studies. I mean, I'd have to go to church like four times a week or five. I'd have to increase prayer and fasting. Instead of doing the 21-day fast, I'm going to have to do the 40-day fast. Conferences, man, i got to shoot about for five or six conferences during the year and get more of this Bible knowledge into my brain. Bible memorization, and I'm going to give up punch keys for 40 days prior to Easter. Maybe that's what would put me over the top. That's not what we're talking about, and that's not at all what Jesus was talking about. When he says surpassing, 
You're not talking about surpassing, meaning that there's a bar raised so high and that you have to be a spiritual athlete, an Olympian, to leap over that bar so that you can surpass that. Let me give three things that help us find out why what Jesus is teaching will overcome our pride and our fear. The first is that the kingdom light, which he's shining for us and telling us we need to shine in the Sermon on the Mount, is brighter than religious light. He says, you're the light of the world. And what does he mean by that? Well, there are two groups of good deed doers. The first good deed doer group is the group that's doing their good deeds, but they're doing them hidden away from the rest of the world because they don't want to be tainted by the world's sin and awfulness. And so they hide their light under a bushel, so to speak. Spiritually speaking, we wouldn't want to light a candle and then hide it away if we're trying to shine the light of kingdom goodness to those around us. He says, no, we want to be like those people who built the city on a hill, which the light can't be hidden. You need to shine this light right out there for people, even if they disagree with you. Even if they're living a lifestyle that's very different from your lifestyle, we as Christians need to shine the light out to those folks we don't hide away from them. We need to engage our world with truth rather than hiding ourselves away and cloistering ourselves from those folks. This reveals how Jesus expects Christians to relate to the world. That's the way he did it. He was our example, primary example. Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners, say the religious leaders? And he would say, well, the ones who are sick need the doctor. So this is Jesus showing us how we're supposed to relate to people. Relate to people who disagree with our beliefs and lifestyles. This is a yes or no statement. Do you think Christians should relate to people who disagree with us? Yes or no? Yes. According to the Sermon on the Mount and based on what I just told you, it's yes. How about religious people? No. The religious people he dealt with did not want to do that. They wanted to stay as far away from people who were different than they were because they were so afraid of getting tainted by that. So they would be able to say, you all should try to be like us if you're going to be religious, but we're not going to help you get there. Which means that they were just separating themselves more and more into these people that would just heap awful laws onto people that nobody could possibly live up to, and they thought that they had arrived somehow. And Jesus says, no, you need to shine that light out there. He gives a couple of illustrations. The way we use salt, as he said, you're supposed to be salty. If salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It's good for nothing. It's just good to be thrown out and trampled on. The way we use salt also determines how bright our light is. Now, we're not talking about something like a potato battery where there's this electrolysis and you can light up a bulb because of salt. That's not what he's mean meaning. But the similarity comes from our pervasiveness out to those who need it the most. Think about that era where they didn't have the kind of refrigeration that we do now. They didn't have refrigerators. The meat could go bad. So what did they use to help keep the meat from going bad, from falling apart? Salt. It had a preserving effect. And who are the people in today's world that we see rushing into places where people are falling apart? Christians. We saw that happen in 2011 with the tsunami in Japan. And it was reported that Months after everybody else had gone in, done their quick work, and then left, Christians were still there helping them rebuild. Same thing has happened with hurricanes that we've seen here in our own country and floods. More recently down south, uh, our southern Baptist denomination has a whole bunch of organized groups 
with disaster relief teams. And they have equipment, they have trucks, they have showers, they have food distribution centers. They rush into these areas and they'll camp out and these people will just set up camp and do whatever they can do to help alleviate suffering and get people back on their feet again. That's being the kind of salt that Christ is talking about here. And salt also becomes flavorful. People are attracted to people like that. Now, they may not be as attracted once they start unpacking some of the doctrine that Jesus is talking about. Even some of his own closest followers started to leave when he got to the hard stuff. But on the surface, at least at the beginning, they're attracted to people who will say, we're doing this because God has given us the ability to do it. He's given himself freely to us. We want to do the same for others. That's the kind of saltiness he's saying. Christians are salt to those who need a preservative. We need to be that. Notice, too, that salt doesn't call attention to itself. I love popcorn, but I like it with a little salt and butter. But when I finish eating a good bucket of popcorn or two, uh, I don't say, man, that was good salt. <laughs> if I did, there's probably too much salt. What I say is, that was great popcorn. How do I know that? Because the salt brought out the flavor of the popcorn. Let me use another illustration from, let's say, a Bible teaching perspective. Let's say that one of our elders is teaching a really erudite Bible study, which they can do, and I'm proud of them for that. I'm glad that we have good Bible teaching in this church. But if somebody walks out of the room after a Bible teaching and says, wow, that guy is biblically knowledgeable. He is good. In fact, he just puts me to shame. Not exactly what we're hoping to hear. What we're hoping to hear is somebody that says, I didn't know that about God, or I see that differently now. God is so good. See what I'm saying about the kind of saltiness? Salt should not call attention to itself. It should bring out the flavor. And for us, we want to point people to say, oh, taste and see how God is so good. That's what we want to be as the kind of salt that Jesus has in mind. It adds flavor, brings out the best taste in food. Number two, kingdom light or goodness, kingdom goodness, is deeper. Not only is it brighter, but it's deeper than religious light. Let me unpack that just a little bit so you see what kind of deeper I'm talking about here. If you were to look at verses 21, 27, 31, 33, and 38 of Matthew 5, it would start, each one of those would start with the same basic statement by Jesus, which is, you have heard it said, right? And then what would be the natural follow-up to that knowing what we know about Jesus and the Sermon on the Mount. Every one of those is followed up by another verse that would say, but I say to you, and if you start to understand what these are and how they're being presented in what order they're being presented, it's like, you've heard it said, you should not murder people. Well, that's a good thing to not do, right? I mean, all of us would probably agree with that. That's a good thing that we shouldn't murder. And then he says, you shouldn't lie. You shouldn't bear false witnesses, or you shouldn't, Commit adultery. What is that starting to sound like to us? The Ten Commandments. That's right. He, he's starting to go through basically the same commandments that all these religious leaders would have known by heart and were trying so hard on the surface to look like they were obeying. But he says, but I say to you. So he's starting to go deeper than just an outward observance or the appearance of observing them. You've heard it said, but I say to you, Think of murder as just one of those. One example. He would say, okay, you've heard it said, you should not murder, but I say to you, to you, if you devalue somebody so much that you have disdain for them, if you have hatred in your heart, you call them a fool, 
and you discard them as a human being in your mind, it's the same as if, as if you'd killed them. Because you're treating them as though the world would be a better place if they didn't even exist. That's where murder starts, is right down deep in the heart. See how he's diving deep down under the surface? Kingdom light is much deeper than religious light. The religious light could say, oh yeah, well I didn't pull the trigger. Well, I haven't actually murdered anybody, so I'm good to go. I'm keeping the commandments. And Jesus said, nah, nah, you're just as guilty because you have such disdain in your heart for those sinners over there that it's like you think the life would be better even without that person, which means you've murdered them in your heart. Fear and pride. They influence our alleged morality. Let me give you an example of that. I'm going to get this to make sure I get it right because it can be a tongue twister if I'm not careful. Lying and not lying. Now, think this through. This is where I'm getting you to put on your logic hats and think through this with me a little bit. Okay, a non-religious person might lie because they fear being punished. It's a normal reaction, right? Oh, man, I don't want the consequence to that, so I'm going to make up a good story so that I appear innocent. Otherwise, I'll be punished. All right, but a religious person might not lie because they fear being punished, but the fear of punishment is different. They might fear being punished by God. Fear is still the motivation, however, for both of these things. One guy lies, the other doesn't lie, both motivated by fear. See how that goes? Now hang in there with me. A non-religious person might lie because they're prideful. I'm more deserving than that person. If, if I get the promotion in this department, the department will succeed far better because I'm better than these other people in there. So I'm going to fudge my report and make myself look better. And it's, you know, the end justifies the means anyway because the company will be better off if I'm in that position. You see the pride that's behind that lie? There's pride that motivates that particular lie. Whereas a religious person might say, I'm not going to lie because I'm more spiritual than those people. Still pride. One lies, the other doesn't. Fear and pride can still be part of the motivation for both of those things. And Jesus knew that, and he knew that because a lot of that was going on even with the religious leaders. <laughs> because there was a pride involved in so much of what motivated them. And on the outside, it made it look like, wow, we're really spiritual people. But they really weren't because he would even use things like saying, you can wash the outside of the cup and the dish, but on the inside it can still be filthy, referring to their hearts. Or a whitewashed sepulcher he mentioned at one point to say, on the outside it may look really pristine and white and clean, but on the inside full of dead men's bones. He used all these illustrations constantly through this Sermon on the Mount to show that he's talking about being deeper. So not only is the kingdom of God's light brighter than religious light, it's deeper than religious light. Third, kingdom light, this goodness, this gospel goodness that Jesus is talking about is so much sweeter than religious light. I'll show you how. Which of these is from Jesus? Number one, try hard to be good and maybe God might be your father. Or two, you can be good if you know that God is your father. Pretty obvious. I mean, I've set you up for this, so hopefully you'll get this one right. Of course, it's two. You can be good if you know that God is your Father. He's really contrasting all through the Sermon on the Mount, this kind of contrast 
If you were to ask somebody, why are you doing these things so sacrificially and with such positive attitude, you probably won't, well, for one thing, you won't get people who are religious, like the scribes and Pharisees were, doing this thing with a positive attitude. And they might not be doing it sacrificially. They'll be doing things to earn points so that they can earn value and make themselves look good. But if somebody is doing something like the Christians in Japan after the tsunami, if you were to ask them, why are you doing these things? What you might get in response is, well, God gave himself up for me. I've been so blessed by him that I just want to share his goodness with other people too. It grows out of a wellspring of goodness from God that he gives us and it has nothing to do with our own personal goodness. That's the big thing. One final example, and I love this one too. If you just fast forward a little bit from Matthew 5 and go into Matthew 6, when he's saying, hey, I'm telling you, don't worry. Don't worry. Now, a religious person who's motivated either by pride or by fear might go, oh, well, if I'm really religious and if he tells me not to worry, then I'd better not worry. <laughs> and you know what they're going to be worrying about? Exactly. How am I going to not worry? I'm worried about not worrying. This is terrible because you can't get there from there. If you understand the motivation for Jesus doing all of this, it's because of God's love for us. He says, if God who feeds the birds, they don't have to toil. They don't have to put in a time clock in the morning and go to work. These birds aren't cranking out widgets. They're not doing anything, and yet they're fed. They've got everything they need. God provides for those sparrows. If he provides for them, don't you think he loves you even more than the sparrows? Don't you think God who loves you so much is going to provide for your needs too? If you understand that, you don't need to worry. It's okay. So there's this whole pervasive theme that if we understand who God is as our Father, the one who loves us enough to even die in our place, then all this starts to come up from like an artesian well. The living water just comes up from somewhere deep down because God has gifted us with that. The religion says, I'm doing good things to get value. I'm going to gain value. Maybe I'll be accepted by God. Maybe I'll be accepted by other people. I'll make myself so valuable that I'll finally have this acceptance to fill the void that I've been trying to fill in whatever ways. The kingdom light or goodness says, I do these good things because I am valued already. Such a difference in our approach. And we get that through the Sermon on the Mount, but we get it even more importantly through Jesus himself who gave himself willingly so that we could be reconciled to God and give these things out freely. The Sermon on the Bar, uh, the Sermon on the Bar, <laughs> the, the Sermon on the Bar, there are some people who have gone into bars to preach. Okay, parentheses, stepping aside for a minute. I went to, this was a scary experience, by the way. I went to a conference in Phoenix when I was still in college and I was studying, not knowing that God would call me to preach one day. And I went with my pastor and we went to a conference where Ralph Neighbor Jr. was teaching and he said, your homework assignment tonight is going to be to go to a bar in Phoenix and strike up a conversation with somebody and see how easy it is for them to talk about spiritual matters gulp you talk about setting some pastors they almost fell off their chairs because there's a lot of pastors that have been raised we don't step foot in those bars where those people are you know what i'm saying and and you could tell some of them were they were very uncomfortable they were squirming 
And he said, you don't have to drink if you don't drink. Don't do that. Order a 7-Up, you know. Ask for it in the bottle so people can say, it's a 7-Up. But go in there and sit down. And so my pastor, Greg Gearing, who had spent some time in bars before he was saved and before he became a pastor, was a little more comfortable being there than I was. But we went into this bar and we sat down and he started just striking up a conversation with this guy who was sitting there. Man, it wasn't five minutes into this conversation. This guy was talking all about spirituality and what he believed and what he didn't believe and Christians and what he thought about them and all this stuff. It was so easy. And it was an eye-opener for us because what Ralph Neighbor Jr. was trying to show us is we're supposed to shine our light to those who are in darkness. Now, I would not have done that if I were an alcoholic. That would have put me in temptation so that I might have ruined my witness as I'm trying to speak to this guy. So there needs to be a modicum of wisdom involved in this whole scenario. But what I'm saying is we pastors needed that because we are so in danger of being these spiritual leaders who are setting the bar so high and expecting people to jump through all these hoops when we're not even willing to sit down next to somebody that we think is a dirty, rotten, low-down, good-for-nothing sinner when Christ died for that person too. So Sermon on the Mount is not a bar to reach. It's not something we have to try to pole vault over through being an Olympic spiritual person. It's actually like a line drawn right down the center of this room. Instead, it's this line and Jesus says, okay, you go down this direction, there's a path. It leads to life. There's a tree with some sweet fruit on it. There's a building built on a firm foundation that's not going to crumble when the storms of life come your way. Here's this other way on the other side of the line. If you go this direction, there's another path, but it leads to destruction. This is the house that's going to crumble onto you because it's not built on the firm foundation. This is the tree that has the poison fruit. And then he just says, which are you going to choose? That's the Sermon on the Mount. This is why it angered the religious leaders so much because they weren't about that. They didn't want to choose the path that Christ was laying out about the kingdom mentality. One says, I'm going to build my life on my goodness and I'm going to earn rewards and I'll be accepted. The other says, I have no goodness in my own to build on, so I'm going to build on Jesus and his goodness because he did it for me. So I accept that. One says, you can try to be your own savior. The other says, I'm going to trust Jesus as my Savior. Let's pray. Father, Jesus' words are so challenging. And I'm grateful for them. I'm grateful that he was willing to stand up to these religious leaders and show up the hypocrisy which can come into play when pride and fear are primary motivators. And I pray that as we learn what it's like to become a kingdom citizen, that we'll understand more and more the love that's behind everything you ask of us, because it changes everything. And I pray that you'll overcome our pride and our fear, and that we'll just have this artesian well of goodness that wells up so we can share the living water with others. Not because of our goodness, but because of your goodness displayed to us on the cross by Jesus who took our place. We can never, ever pay you back, so help us to just keep loving you back. 
as we shine the light of this gospel goodness to others, not hiding it away from them, but shining it to them, being salt and light in a world that's desperate for what only you can provide. And I pray it in Jesus' name.